A bit more of Exodus for us, folks. Uh, Chapter 16 and starting at verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one of you is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning everyone gathered as much as he needed, And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered as much. They they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake And boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded. And it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day... The Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt.
So Jesus, what miraculous sign are you going to give us then so that we can see it and believe in you? That's what the people asked Jesus on the back of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe they weren't aware that the bread and fish that they'd recently enjoyed were the result of a miracle. The multiplication of food. One young boy's packed lunch of rolls and fish, yielding enough food to satisfy the hunger of a crowd of thousands with plenty to spare. They'd been part of that. They'd participated in it. What more could they possibly want by way of a miraculous sign? What else would convince them? Or were they actually so sceptical about Jesus that whatever he did, nothing would really satisfy them? As it is, they say to him, well, our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. It's written, isn't it? He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So what are you going to do? Well, maybe that's the issue. They wanted a sign from heaven. Not just more ordinary bread and fish, but something out of the ordinary. Bread from heaven, the manna which miraculously sustained the people of Israel in the desert. Well, Jesus sets them right on that score on two points. Firstly, he says, well, don't work for the food that perishes, because the manna disappeared overnight. Um, you, You weren't to keep it. It went off. Work for the food that comes from heaven that endures to eternal life. And then he says, well, you want the bread that's come down from heaven? That's me, actually. The bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, and I am the bread of life. You want a sign to take the place of the manna? You're looking at him. Now, I am the living bread which has come down from heaven, and if you eat this bread, you will live forever. Jesus is trying to show them that the the loaves they ate at the feeding of the 5,000 were a picture of him, the bread which came down from heaven to bring eternal life to everybody. But they couldn't, or maybe they wouldn't, see that. Instead, they were demanding that he provide them with manna, like Moses did, to authenticate his claims, because they thought they knew what manna was about. Jesus was something different. The implication of their line of questioning was that if Jesus produces the manna, well and good, they will be convinced by his claims just as the people of Israel accepted Moses' leadership when he produced the manna for them. It's kind of a sign of authentication. But Jesus sets them right there again. It wasn't Moses who produced the bread in the desert for the people. It was his Father in heaven who gave them the manna to eat. And actually, when you look at the story in Exodus 16, the people who received the manna don't particularly stand out as an example to follow in terms of faith and obedience. Here they are saying, well, you give us the manna, we'll follow you like our forefathers followed Moses when they had the manna. Well, actually, they didn't do a very good job, did they, their forefathers? The manna arrives because, as we saw this morning, they're panicking about what they're going to eat, and they give Moses a hard time over this grumbling at him. And in the morning when the manna is there, Moses tells them that this is the bread that the Lord has given them to eat. Each of them is to take as much as he needs for that evening. Don't keep any of it overnight. But some of them do, and come the following morning it stinks, 
and is full of worms. On the Sabbath, though, the people are supposed to gather twice as much because the manna won't be there for them on the Sabbath day because the Sabbath is a day of rest. But on the Sabbath, there were still some of them get up and go out looking for manna, expecting to find it there, even though they've been told there won't be any there for you on the Sabbath. There were clear communication issues there between what was said and what the people heard and responded to. And we've all had that experience here along the line. And you can sense the Lord's frustration as he says to Moses, how long, how long will they refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? How long is this going to go on for before they learn to do what I say? It seemed as if they were quite incapable of following the simplest set of instructions. Go out, get your manna, as much as you need for the day, don't keep it overnight, on the Sabbath you get twice as much. That's fairly simple, but they couldn't grasp it. It didn't bode well for their ability to keep God's commandments for the future. The basic ten plus all the 603 extra ones that they were in terms of working out what it meant to obey God in detail. What was perhaps especially galling was that these people had spent the last 400 years in slavery. Their whole way of life had consisted entirely in other people telling them what to do. And now, once they're out of Egypt, being told what to do wasn't on their agenda at all anymore. Maybe it's because they had been liberated. They'd been set free. And now, we want complete independence, thank you very much. No one's going to tell us what to do. Having been released from Egyptian control and domination, they were unwilling to submit to any kind of authority at all. They were free. Having spent their whole life being coerced and bullied and beaten into submission, they were quite resistant to the idea of doing anything that anybody else told them that they had to do at all, ever. The problem is that that attitude is actually quite destructive. In a world where independence is prized above submission, you end up in a situation where each looks out for himself, each insists upon his rights, each fights for his existence, and life becomes a struggle of all against all. The freedom that God gives is not a freedom for me to do as I please. Now that the people were no longer under Egyptian control, they were finding it really hard to learn how to trust the God who was calling them into a completely different kind of relationship, but one which still required them to submit to him. Between the scylla of being under somebody else's control and the charybdis of complete independence, they were struggling to find the middle path of learning to trust in the God who loved them and to submit to the God who loved them. And what's true of their relationship with God is actually true of any relationship. To be under someone's control is wrong. To have complete independence actually is really unhealthy and destructive. Learning to trust, learning to submit, learning to love, these are hard lessons to learn but they are essential lessons if any relationship is going to work. Relationship between God and his people, relationship between us and anybody else. 
So day by day, the Israelites had to learn to trust that every morning the manna would be there, except on the Sabbath day. So they'd have to gather twice as much the day before. Simple lessons. But when it's all about the food you need to sustain you through the day, a lot is at stake. They had to learn that they belong now to a God who is gracious, who is faithful, who had promised to provide for their needs. But that trust was a long time coming. And until they learned to trust, they weren't prepared to submit to what he told them. So you can see from the word go that this relationship is off to a bumpy start and it's not going to be easy down the line. And what about us? What about our capacity to trust God, to submit to him? If we don't trust God, that means we can end up relying on our own strength and accomplishment to procure life. It's about who I am and what I do that's important. We judge ourselves and those around us by how much we achieve and how much they achieve and how much better than them we're doing, or or not, as the case may be. We can aim for that elusive target of success, working for the bread which perishes, as Jesus put it, rather than recognising that our true value lies in the knowledge that we are loved and in our capacity to give love to others. We were designed to be relational beings. That's a core part of our identity. And suppressing that in the drive to achieve success is never going to bring contentment. So we return to Jesus, talking to the crowd the other side of the lake and telling them not to work for the food that spoils, but to set their hearts on the food which endures to eternal life, which he is able to give them. And he gives that food to people who trust him, to people who believe in him, to people who submit to him as Lord. He actually models this way of life himself. He's not saying, well, you've you've got to trust me and submit to me, because he says, actually, I came down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. She says, you you want to learn what it's like, authentic human living. Look at me, my submission to the Father, my trust in the Father. He's not standing outside the way of living, saying, this is how you've got to do it. He says, look, you know, my, my life has been about submitting to my Father's will, doing my Father's will, trusting my Father. You do the same with me. And what's the will of my Father? The will of him who sent me is that I should lose none of all that he's given me, but shall raise them up at the last day. For the Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. There it is in a nutshell. Jesus calling us to trust him, to submit to him as Lord, as he himself submits to the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that he should rescue us from death and raise us up to eternal life. And we find that eternal life as we embrace the relationship of submission and trust that Jesus himself models in his relationship with his Father. It's as we trust him that he gives us the gift of eternal life. 
It's as we submit to him that we begin to walk as people who are living out eternal life in the here and now. Eternal life cannot be about my achievement, my success, my self-importance, my identity. It can only be about my submission to Jesus, my trust in Jesus as Lord. That's the key to eternal life. And that's not necessarily a message that goes down all that well today in a culture that prizes independence and success. But Jesus isn't showing us how to make it to the top of the greasy pole or to how to win the rat race. He's talking about eternal life. Life in all its fullness. Life as it was meant to be lived. The life for which we were designed in the first place. A life where we submit to God and trust in God, and where we submit to each other in love, and we're prepared to trust each other in love. That's the life that we're called to live. That's the pathway to eternal life as we follow Jesus, how he lived, and put our trust in him. And Jesus brings this message to us, not because he wants to spoil our fun or limit our potential or stop us getting the most out of life, but because as our creator, he knows what makes us tick. And this Advent Sunday, he comes to us and he offers us the bread of eternal life. John John chapter 6, verses 50 to 51, here is the bread that comes down from heaven which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. What's it mean to eat of this bread? It means to accept Jesus. It means to welcome him as the one who came down from heaven to be with us. It means to put our trust in him to submit to him as Lord. And we can express that commitment to Christ by eating the bread that's set before us on the communion table. It is just bread. But it is bread that represents the body of Christ broken for us. It represents the reality of what Jesus meant when he said that the bread is his flesh, which he gives for the life of the world. And as we see the bread broken, we think of the body of Jesus broken. As we receive the bread, we receive Christ. As as we eat the bread, symbolically we feed on Christ and draw strength from Christ. Sometimes actions speak louder than words. Jesus didn't just talk about loving us. He laid down his life for us. And we can sing songs and say prayers about being committed to Jesus, but sometimes without words, eating the bread, drinking the wine, these are profoundly symbolic actions. In receiving the bread, we receive Christ. We confess that in his death, he brought life to the world. 
We put our trust in him. We eat the bread of life. And as we eat this bread, we accept that the bread of God is the one who came down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus showed his commitment to us, his love for us, in giving his life. We show our answering response of commitment to him and love for him by eating the bread and drinking the wine and asking for grace to help us to trust him, to help us to submit to him, to turn away from running after the bread which perishes, all the the dreams of success and achievement and all about me, actually to, it's all about you, Jesus. Life of submission to Christ. Life of trust in Christ. A life lived in service for others. A life that leads to heaven. The way of life that Jesus modelled is the way of life he calls us to follow as we set our hearts on him. And we express that by eating bread and drinking wine together at the close of our service.